0: welcome to house of david ministries i'm pastor eric
1: and i'm gabriella join us as we learn about the rich heritage of our christian faith
0: in each episode we explore a unique topic that will deepen your knowledge of christ and who we are as his people
1: hello and welcome to another house of david podcast for those of you who are new to house of david We are a teaching ministry that helps Christians understand their biblical heritage and connection to Israel. In our last podcast, we began digging into the roots of supersessionism, commonly known as replacement theology, that stemmed from antisemitism that was present even in the early church, and how this began to create division between Jews and Gentiles, which was contrary to Jesus' command for love and unity, and what Paul describes as one new man in Christ. I'm here again today with Pastor Eric. In this podcast, we will continue exploring the writings of the early church fathers that created the theological foundation for supersessionism and which moved the church away from the teachings of the apostles and the biblical foundation of the church. So Eric, tell us who were the church fathers?
0: Well, that is a great question. And first, let me say, I think it's really important for Christians to know their history. So, who are the church fathers? Well, they were men who lived in the first and second centuries. And these first uh, group were called the apostolic fathers, the earliest ones. And some of them are believed to have personally known the 12 apostles, or they were at least significantly influenced by them. So, in other words, these first apostolic fathers are not the 12 apostles who were called by Jesus, and of course, that includes Matthias who we know in Acts 126 was chosen to replace Judas Iscariot Now regarding Paul and Barnabas there is disagreement on whether they are considered apostles or apostolic fathers I personally consider Paul to be an apostle because he actually proclaimed himself to be he said the least of the apostles So these men became influential Christian theologians and writers who established the doctrinal foundation of Christianity. Now, the writings were ultimately not included in the canon of the New Testament once it reached its final form. So this historic period that immediately succeeds, the apostles became known as the Patristic Era. And at the beginning, again, 1st and 2nd century, you have the Apostolic Fathers, but the entirety of the Patristic Era spans from the 1st to the mid-8th centuries. Now, it flourished during the 4th and 5th centuries, when Christianity was established as, as the state church of the Roman Empire. And for many denominations, the writings of the church fathers are included in their sacred traditions, and they treat the writings as authoritative for establishing church doctrine. Now, I find this detail particularly interesting, because Christians often chastise the Jewish people for listening to the opinions of the rabbis and the sages, neglecting what they say is God's word. And yet here Jesus rebuked the Jewish leaders, and he refers in Isaiah to them. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. That's Mark 7, verses 6 and 7. That's the NIV version. And so here we are now today, we find in many denominations that the writings of the church fathers are treated as authoritative, even if they contradict scripture. And Jesus said, hypocrites. Now, when you look closely at the most influential church fathers who helped establish the sacred traditions of the church and its theological doctrine, again, excluding Paul, we find that after the second century, most likely none of these men were Jewish. And so that means until their conversion to Christianity, these men came from pagan cultures with one caveat. And although it's unverifiable, it's believed by many Catholics that St. Ignatius of Antioch was of Jewish origin, and the Orthodox Church seems to hold to this tradition also. What is more certain is that Ignatius was a disciple of the Apostle John, and so was Polycarp. He was the bishop of the church in Smyrna. So let's look at some of the church history to see where theological errors introduced by Gentile Christians move the church away from Israel and its biblical foundation. In the first century, Clement asserted what is called apostolic succession, which essentially led to what's called papal succession or the succession of the pope, which we find in the Roman Catholic Church. Apostolic succession teaches that bishops represent a direct, uninterrupted line of continuity from the first apostles of Jesus all the way through to the Pope today. And these bishops are believed to possess certain special powers that are handed down to them from the apostles, including the right to confirm church members, to ordain priests, to consecrate other bishops, and to rule over the clergy.
1: This is interesting. This is very likely the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which is referenced in the book of Revelation, In both the letter to the church in Ephesus, which was commended by Jesus for rejecting this doctrine as false, and also in the letter to the church in Pergamon, which was rebuked for embracing this doctrine. And while it's not 100% clear what exactly this doctrine is referring to, there is a general consensus that this is referring to a sect in the church that was trying to establish something similar to a priestly order probably trying to model the church after the Old Testament order of priests, Levites, and common people. So if you break down the word Nicolations in Greek, nico means to conquer or to overthrow, and laos means the people or laity. So the object was to establish a holy order of men, which would include clergy, bishops, archbishops, cardinals, and popes, and place them over the laity. So the Nicolations were basically the forerunners of the clerical hierarchy superimposed upon the laity, which was basically robbing them of their spiritual freedom. And this is believed to be the origin of the dogma of the apostolic succession.
0: Yeah, it is. And in the second century, Ignatius advocated for episcopal supremacy. And I'm going to talk about that here in a moment, what that actually means. But during this time, the church in Rome was becoming an influential center of Christianity, which gave the bishop of Rome, which we know as the pope, more power over the entire church. And so this ushered in this era of papal supremacy, not just papal succession. So papal supremacy is the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church that the pope, as the vicar of Christ, is the visible source and foundation of the unity of both the bishops and the entire church congregation. And as the pastor of the Catholic Church, he has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole Church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. So, from paragraph 937 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I quote, the Pope enjoys by divine institution supreme, full, immediate, and universal power in the care of souls. Now, Ignatius. Also, established the term Cathilokos, Catholic, meaning universal. The term was later exclusively applied to the church in Rome, which became known as the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church considers itself to be the one true universal church. So, while Catholics often recognize that there are other Christian denominations, they do not consider these other denominations to be part of the church. In their view, there's only one universal church, and that is the Roman Catholic Church.
1: It's really interesting to learn that the foundation of Catholicism goes all the way back to the first century. So with the church's power and influence increasingly shifting towards Rome, it feels like the Pope and bishops in Rome were positioning themselves to assert their power and influence over the entire Christian world.
0: Yeah, and by the second century, a sizable and influential Catholic church was already established in Rome. Now, there were two other major centers at the time. One was in Antioch, which is modern day Syria, and the other was Alexandria, Egypt. And there were power struggles that began to emerge between these churches in the East and the Western Church in Rome. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. So, what is happening to the global church and how is this affecting its views about Israel and God's kingdom? Well, Remember last month we talked about Tertullian and his false or distorted views of Israel and the church, and he essentially believed that God intended to create two separate people groups, Israel, who remains subject to God's Mosaic law, and the Gentiles, the church, who are subject only to God's grace. Now, Tertullian is considered to be one of the most prominent church fathers of the third century. He was the first Christian author to produce an extensive corpus of Latin Christian literature and has been called the father of Latin Christianity, as well as the founder of Western theology, which is Catholicism. And his negative influences on the church were profound. Tertullian wrongly believed that because Israel rejected her Messiah, God's divine mercy had left Israel and had now fallen upon the Gentiles which we learned a few episodes ago is called punitive supersessionism. So to him, the Gentiles had become the new Israel. And Tertullian's last nail in his coffin of false theology was his declaration that Israel, whom he considered the greater because of their pride under the Mosaic law, will eventually become the lesser under the Gentile Christians. So instead of Israel ultimately becoming the fulfillment of God's plan in his kingdom, where the nations would be joined and grafted into her, the church, comprising primarily Gentiles, he felt, now replaces Israel and Israel becomes subservient rather than equal to the Gentiles within the church. And, you know, this pervasive thinking did actually begin in the first century. Paul wrote about it, obviously, in the book of Romans, but it continued with many of the church fathers, like Tertullian, who penned these new theologies that diminished or entirely relegated God's promises to Israel and the Jewish people. The Gentile church was not only vying for power within itself, as, you know, I talked about these power struggles between the East and the West, but its jealousy towards the Jewish people motivated it to vie for control over the authoritative teachings of the apostles, who were all Jewish, and even scripture itself, which, of course, was entirely written by Jewish scribes. There's questions about the book of Luke, but for the most part, it was written by Jewish scribes. And this manifestation of jealousy has continued as an outward expression of arrogance towards the Jewish people.
1: And sadly, the history of the church's treatment of the Jewish people is not a good one.
0: No, and church history towards the Jewish people got much worse, especially towards the Middle Ages. While Tertullian derived the church's two-people group theology laying the groundwork for supersessionism to be foundationally established within the church, he did strongly argue against contemporary Christian Gnosticism. So his contributions to the church were also positive. But concerning Israel and the church, he was very wrong. Several church fathers in the 1st and 2nd centuries were Gnostics. We read about Sorinthus, Basilides, and Valentinus, to name a few, Gnosticism was quickly becoming a prominent heretical movement of the second century church, and later it would become deeply interwoven embedded in Western Christian theology. The early church continually defended the doctrine of free will and refuted the Gnostics, who held to the doctrine of what's called total inability and fatalism. Total inability essentially means that man is so depraved that he does not possess the freedom or the free will to choose good. He can only be evil. And we'll see how these Gnostic views negatively impacted the church in the 4th and 5th centuries, and later it influenced the writings of John Calvin. The Greek adjective gnostikos means leading to knowledge or pertaining to knowledge. And the Gnostics taught that the flesh was sinful in of itself Hans Jonas, in his book about Gnosticism, said, quote, The human body is of devilish substance and also of devilish design, which, of course, contradicts the creation that God created man in his image, and he said it was very good. Because the Gnostics viewed the flesh as a sinful substance, they denied that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, and that is why the scriptures called them Antichrist. And I believe they actually also denied the bodily resurrection. Gnostics believed that salvation could only be obtained through secret knowledge that helped them overcome this material world. To them, the material world was evil, and overcoming this material world required Christianity to only focus on the spiritual realm. Now, remember I mentioned earlier that a power struggle was emerging between the church centers in the East and the Western Church in Rome, and each was trying to establish papal supremacy, who would ultimately govern and control the entire church. Now, they also argued over differences surrounding the observance of the Passover, as well as these heretical theologies introduced by the Gnostic Christians from Alexandria. These arguments culminated in the First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, which is situated in modern-day Turkey, where there were church leaders from all over the Christian world who were brought together in one place to reach an agreement and settle these divisive issues. These divisive issues go back even to the 2nd century. In fact, there was a split between the Western church and those in the East. The church in Rome actually excommunicated the church in the East because of their observance of the Passover holding to the Hebrew calendar, whereas the church in Rome wanted to observe the Passover on a Sunday on one day of the year. Now, Nicaea was the first ecumenical council of the Christian church after the council in Jerusalem led by the Jewish apostles. And it's interesting that not one Jewish Christian leader was invited to this council. Emperor Constantine Augustus convened the council to settle these disputes within the church, but really he ultimately wanted to unite his empire under the banner of Christianity. So he writes this letter to this newly formed and now more powerful and united Catholic church, which was horribly anti Semitic. And so, Gabby, why don't you read just part of it for us?
1: Okay, well, prepare yourselves because this is pretty hard to hear some of this, uh, what's written here. So, the letter goes like this First of all, it appeared an unworthy thing that in the celebration of this most holy feast, Passover, we should follow the practice of the Jews who have impiously defiled their hands with enormous sin, and are therefore deservedly afflicted with blindness of soul. For we have it in our power, if we abandon their custom, to prolong the due observance of this ordinance to future ages by a truer order, which we have preserved from the very day of the Passion until the present time. Let us then have nothing in common with the detestable Jewish crowd, for we have received from our Savior a different way. Still, it would be incumbent on your judgments to strive and pray continually that the purity of your souls may not seem in anything to be sullied by fellowship with the customs of these most wicked men. Therefore, it was needful that this matter of the Passover observance should be rectified so that we might have nothing in common with that nation of parasites who slew their Lord. I myself have undertaken that this decision— to change the observance of the Passover to one Sunday per year, should meet with the approval of your wise judgment. Receive then with all willingness this truly divine injunction, and regard it as in truth the gift of God. For whatever is determined in the holy assemblies of the bishops is to be regarded as indicative of the divine will. As soon, therefore, as you have communicated these proceedings to all our beloved brethren, You are bound by Roman civil law from that time forward to adopt for yourselves and to enjoin on others the arrangement above mentioned. I just find it interesting that he's using the words divine will here and divine injunction. So you can see he's already taking on this role of the Pope.
0: Yeah, he's actually taking both the law of Moses and the Jewish traditions of the oral law that were celebrated in the Passover. And he creates this new ceremonial law for the church that is now bound by Roman civil law. What he actually did was the popes were actually made subservient to the, the ruler of the Roman Empire, to the Caesar. And um, he, But he joins the church together with the, the civil government of the Roman Empire. And then in, in 380 AD... Edict of Thessalonica made Christianity the state religion. So this meant that anyone breaking any law ordained by the church could face civil penalties, and those penalties later included forced conversion of the Jews or being put to death for violating man's superimposed law. I find it interesting how the Lord warned the Jewish people in the book of Daniel that the prince of this world, who is Satan, would attempt to change God's law and his calendar. And so how fitting that Satan would attempt to corrupt the church by changing the time frame for the observance of the Passover and its connection to Israel, thereby separating the church from its biblical foundation. Paul's warnings to the Gentiles nearly two centuries earlier to not boast or become arrogant against the Jewish people is precisely what the church did. Even as early as the 2nd century, we find that Melito, the bishop of Sardis, started referring to the Jewish scriptures as the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, the very covenant through which God established the nation of Israel. And so if the Old is replaced by the New, then the church must be the New Israel. And again, this is replacement theology. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the patristic era flourished during the 4th and 5th centuries, once Christianity was established as the state church of the Roman Empire. During this period, we find three notable church fathers. Jerome, who compiled the Latin Vulgate, which was the translation of the Bible into Latin, and it was used by the Western church for centuries. Augustine, the bishop of Hippo, who was the most influential theologian of all the fathers of, in the West. Jerome was actually one of his correspondents. And lastly, John Chrysostom, who was the patriarch of Constantinople. And he is, was considered one of the greatest preachers of the, the church fathers. But St. Augustine of Hippo, and this is around 354 to 430 AD, he's the most influential in shaping the practice of biblical exegesis laying the foundation for Roman Catholicism and modern Christian thinking. Augustine, after saturating himself in Gnostic philosophy, joined the church and became the bishop of Hippo Regis in Numidia, which is Roman North Africa. He then began to contradict what the church had always taught on human nature and the freedom of man's will, and he taught in accordance with the Gnostic views of human nature and free will which is what I I talked about earlier with Gnosticism. The Church, through the influence of Augustine, began to embrace and teach the doctrine of total inability. And further, Augustine extensively read Platonic texts to understand their doctrine and redefined Christianity as a rival and replacement for these ancient Greek philosophers. So in his book, City of God, which was a massive volume of work that took him 12 years to complete, he redefined his understanding of the 1,000-year millennial kingdom of Christ. Augustine had previously viewed the millennium as a literal future 1,000 years, but he changed his beliefs, incorrectly presuming that the millennium began at the first advent of Christ. He also incorrectly predicted that the binding of Satan would be completed in the year 650 AD and that Christ would return at that time. Of course, that did not happen. Augustine also believed that the church saints presently reign with Christ in an inferior way, but that one day in the future, in the fullness of Christ's coming kingdom, those who have been blessed by God the Father will reign in a superior way to this present age. Again, to him, if the church is the new Israel, then all the covenant promises made with historic Israel presently are being fulfilled through the church. To him, the church was now God's vessel to establish his inwardly personal kingdom, salvation, and his outwardly communal kingdom, the ecclesia, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, both of these things are actually true, but in order for Augustine to reconcile the literal prophecies concerning Israel with the church that are in the Old Testament, he allegorized these prophecies with his Gnostic views, and he redefined the millennial kingdom. Not as a literal future restoration of Israel, but as a spiritual new Israel, which is the church. And this view became known as Augustinian Amillennialism, which is also called Chiligurism. Amillennialism rejects the idea of a future millennial kingdom in which Christ will physically reign on earth for 1,000 years. And instead, it considers the thousand years in the book of Revelation as allegoric or symbolic. The millennium has already begun to them and it is identical to the current church age. They also believe that Christ's present reign is spiritual. And at the end of the church age, Christ will return in the final judgment to establish a permanent kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth, with, of course, the church. In addition, he argued for a universal church here on earth as it is in heaven. In his book, *City of God, he held to an anti-Donatist polemic, which essentially held a distinct role in creating the governing relationship between the church and the state, and he appealed for a universal church to replace local, independent, self-governing congregation. So, what is Donatism? Well, Donatism was a schismatic Christian religion in North Africa from the 4th to the 7th century that held that only those who led a blameless life belonged to the church or could administer the sacraments. It was the primary form of Christianity in Africa where Augustine spent most of his life. And of course, it's, it's a false religion. But the outcome of Augustine's polemic against Donatism was the formation and rise to power of the Roman Catholic Church and its papal supremacy over every congregation. And after Constantine at the Edict of Thessalonica, the church entered into a subservient relationship with the Roman Empire. The hierarchy of this newly restructured church not only reflected the organization of the Roman Empire, but its ecclesiastical councils also functioned like parliaments that embodied its philosophical wisdom and, of course, its civil laws. As the Roman church grew in power and affluence, the church began to construct opulent cathedrals and places of worship, and these buildings became monuments to their wealth and political power. The evolutionary changes from the early church were not accidental because they aligned with Augustine's amillennial theology. Because if the universal Catholic church was now here on earth as it is in heaven, then its buildings should reflect the splendor and glory of God and heaven itself. The church has literally been building God's kingdom without Jesus and apart from his covenant nation, Israel. So, this is important because how Christians view the relationship between Israel and the church, the relevance of biblical prophecy to the restoration of Israel, and the perceived order of eschatological events that lead up to the return of Christ and his millennial kingdom, will ultimately determine their hermeneutical and exegetical opinions about the church and its relationship with the Jewish people. And so as we've been exploring, many of these opinions have been motivated by this underlying jealousy and even disdain of the Jewish people, leading many in the church to hold to a false theological view that the church has somehow replaced historical Israel as the new Israel. These views have not only caused enormous divisions within the Christian community, but have also driven a deep wedge between the church and the Jewish people. So, in summary, there's really only one proper view of God's kingdom, and this view is the full restoration of the nation of Israel. Classical premillennialism means that God's kingdom and the restoration of Israel are future promises that we, the church, will actively be a part of but will not see completely fulfilled until Jesus returns. And yet, God is already working on the restoration of Israel, which we're going to talk about in a future podcast.
1: In Jeremiah 32, verse 41, God says, I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. Beautiful words. I am looking forward to continuing this fascinating discussion In our upcoming episodes, we will further discuss the distinction between Israel and the church, and how the Millennial Kingdom is tied to the restoration of Israel. We'll break down the various forms of dispensationalism and look at God's fulfillment of his promises to Israel and the church. Thank you, Pastor Eric, and thank you all for joining us today. Please continue to pray for God's hand of protection to be over Israel, pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for the hostages. To return safely home and most importantly please pray for the people of israel to know their messiah yeshua we look forward to you joining us next time on house of david podcast if you have enjoyed this podcast from house of david ministries make sure you subscribe to our channel and don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter
0: we pray the lord richly bless you and we look forward to having you join us again for our next episode